And while you're greeting, you'll probably be caught by Bridget or Eric there handing out some of the handouts for tonight. our classes dismissed. So we're going to get started tonight. Um, I'll just uh, forewarn you, this will be a, a two-part a two lesson. Um, tonight we're going to talk through some things and it will carry over to next week. Um, and hopefully you all were able um, to get the handout tonight. Everyone's got one of these, right? Wait, that's not... That is not what I wanted to hand out, so hopefully you don't have that. In fact, actually, you know what? Now that I think of it, we could probably make some copies of this if you guys want it. Does anybody want to do some coloring tonight, maybe an activity? I could bring Cynthia in here. She would explain this whole lesson up here. She'll probably do a much wonderful job than me, but um, sometimes I joke um, I joke with the others that are often behind uh, this pulpit, too, and I say, why can't we have snacks in adult class? I mean, wouldn't that help us stay a little bit more tuned to what's being said? I mean, our bellies are full while we're hearing the word, right? I mean, it's like a double-edged sword. Um, but no, I, I, I think that, and then sometimes on Sunday mornings, I really think we need to have nap time, but that is a whole other subject that we won't talk about tonight. Um, but humor is good because it lets us loosen up a little bit, right? Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, um, we're going to start, um, just with a scripture. And if, if you want to stand, you can, um, we're going to read through, uh, just a brief passage in Hebrews chapter one. And I hope that, um, what we gather tonight will be something that's impactful, um, it's probably not a new revelation, but it's something that's very key to our walk as a Christian today. So in Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. And I'm already feeling where we're going with this tonight, so I love this passage. It says in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he had, has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And last verse, verse 5, for to who or to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Amen. Well, if you just want to set your Bibles down, let's just pray one more time. God, we thank you, Jesus, so much for this time together. God, and all that you're doing in this church, God, truly just bless us with your, with your word tonight, God, with your revelation, Lord Jesus, what you've given us as a church to move forward with, God. Just open our minds, give us ears to hear, Lord God, and eyes to see what the word of the Lord has to say tonight. We pray this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So tonight, 
I wanted to open up with just a little something different. And so what I'm going to have you do in a moment is just put on slide two. Not yet, if you can, if you haven't already. I don't even know what you're doing. I can't see. Um, but what we're going to do is um, show that in a minute. But what I want to explain to you real first is something that's going to lead us into our lesson tonight. And you'll probably know where I'm going. But the enigmatic smile remains a mystery, but French scientists say they have cracked a few secrets of the Mona Lisa. Specialists from the Center for Research and Restoration of the Museums of France found that da Vinci painted up to 30 layers of paint on his work to meet his standards of subtlety. And you can put that slide up there for everyone to see. We all recognize that painting, right? Added up all these 30 layers, just think of this, are less than 40 micrometers and about half the thickness of a human hair. The technique called stumato, hopefully I did say that right, allowed da Vinci to give outlines and contours a hazy quality and create such an illusion of depth and shadow that has never been seen before in that century. The analysis of the various paintings also shows da Vinci was constantly trying out new methods. One specialist said, in the Mona Lisa, da Vinci used manganese oxide as a shading. In others, he used copper. And he often used things called glazes, which gave kind of a, a, a different view or look at what the paint was underneath. But he didn't always use this in all of his paintings. The beauty and artistic methods used in this painting are well known around the world. It has become priceless and is an example to the many artists that have arrived after his time. And we'll, we'll come back to this painting in a little bit. But it was said to have taken him 16 years to paint that. 30 layers in 16 years to make one of the most famous paintings that we know of in this world, really, at this time. But what I want to transition to is as we begin to look at the Bible, its text of many different writers and during many different time periods, yet with just one author. It spans centuries and yet has a beginning chapter and has an ending chapter. We can read it all through in about a year, even some of us less than that. It holds the potential for the reader to discover their identity, their purpose, and their path. Amen? They say artists paint not with their identity or their personality in mind, but more their identity and their personality comes out and comes to them as they begin to paint and as they get, begin to explore the canvas. One such book of the Bible is exactly like this. If you were to think of a writer, an author that kind of has the pen that is very much like the paintbrush, if you would call it within the Word of God, is the author of the book of Hebrews. This is classified as a general epistle. We, we know that, and tonight we're going to look at some of the key elements that make this powerful piece something that we can help us also find our own identity and bring revelation to our purpose. So, Hebrews. I don't know if that's a favorite book amongst anyone here tonight. It's one of those that we have a lot of questions about. A lot of theologians don't know some of the details about this book within the Bible. It's 
epistle, so it is made up of a mu much different letters that were written throughout a period of time. Uh, the author, this is still left up to discovery. We may only be able to speculate uh, who wrote this. Um, though many of the epistles and our letters written to the churches of history have had some type of introduction. If you remember that, if you, if you go through those epistles, especially Paul's, he always has like some type of introduction he makes. You can identify the author through that. Um, it helps us understand what his purpose is as well. But the book of Hebrews is almost written in a way where it seems to just take off from a, a place that already existed. Yet we don't know where that place was. So it's not easy for us to understand that level of where Hebrews is. And there's a lot of speculation. If you go out there, I'll let you do that on your own of who might have been the author of this wonderful book. But um, it is a fantastic piece of text and we'll find some cool things within it tonight. And we're not going to really focus too much on some of the beginning portions of who and why and that purpose, but we will see some very important things in the author's writing style and how he depicts certain methods of, of, of telling tales, of telling stories, of, of talking about certain aspects of the Word of God. He explains things differently. He talks about things in a different way. He has a style that is a little bit unique. We'll get a better understanding and the motive of the author if we actually start to take a look at some of those areas. So, this will be on your handout, the first place that you'll look to fill out. Um, and it says, the book of Hebrews has a format that follows what we would call an antithesis. Antithesis. And if you're familiar, if you are, you don't have to be an English major, but if you're interested in uh, literature and writings, you'll find out that Antithesis is a figure of speech in which an opposition or contrast of ideas, so contrasting ideas or opposition, uh, opposing ideas, is expressed actually by putting them in parallel. So you're basically combining them right next to each other, and they may be very different at first glance, but you start to look at them in a way how they are similar and not similar together down the same thought, down the same purpose, down the same idea. And this is actually the way that the author of Hebrews chooses to describe what's going on in that time. They want us to be able to see the difference between God's provision and promises for his people in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, compared to the promises and provision in the New Covenant, the New Testament. And this method of uh, antithesis is not just a direct comparison like the pros and the cons, but it uses the same concepts from each covenant. It uses the same expression of things in each covenant to show why, and this is the important piece here, why the new covenant is the more excellent way. And that's, the, of course, the title I have for my message or my lesson starting tonight is The More Excellent Way. So Hebrews shows us that it's the past that promotes the future. It was what was done then that created what we have now. It really is quite beautiful the way he, he does this. Our current culture, though, as we probably all already realize um, as we are living in the world today, we actually prefer the present or the future when we look to things. Everyone's always concerned about the now or they're concerned about what is to come. That's where our minds go. We think ahead. We think forward. We think in front of us, right? Whether it be in the day or whether it be the week or whatever. That's the planning nature. That's the 
where mankind has gone in the present modern world. Um, but the ancient culture typically gave priority to the past, which is different than this current time. And we'll see that in verses such as the one we read, Hebrews 1 and 1. It said, God who at sundry times and in diverse manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. There's preference. There's always an association. There's always a thought going towards. There's always looking back to the past. And that's the way the ancient cultures did that. But the author knows this. He's not ignorant to this fact. So it's part of their culture. They understand it. They understand the way people are going to respond to certain things. The past had prominence. It was a source of truth they knew. It was what guided them for thousands of years. So the past was something that was still relevant to them in that day. So knowing this, the potential readers, knowing that they would prefer the past the author brings revelation in a very unique way. And this is where we're going to learn maybe something new for some of us, and maybe some of you know this. But he uses a brilliant method to capture the reader's attention. In your handout, it says this, in order for anything of the current time or any new revelation to overtake that of the old, it would need to put it at a disadvantage. That's the key word there, disadvantage. So when we're looking at that, when we read through the book of Hebrews, everything that's stated that refers to the old, and then it starts to introduce something that is revolutionary, that is going to change the way that someone thinks about something. It's going to point them in a new direction. What they do is they do it in such a way. He does it in such a way. He or she does it in such a way that it puts it at a disadvantage. So it says we're not getting rid of that, but what we're saying it's just not quite as good as what this is. And it's a really cool way that he does this. So the author understood that God's revelation would come in his own time. He didn't try to push anything forward, but he unveiled it. Things that have already taken place, things that are already before them. So revelation would not come because of a more, and this is a struggle we have in more modern, modern times, is it wouldn't come because of, we're more enlightened people or that um, our knowledge has increased, right? Um, or because we've entered into a time of reasoning. That's the way we think about things, that when, when God speaks to us, oftentimes He gives us revelation in His time and for a specific purpose. And He unveils it to us in a way that is not very similar to the ways that sometimes we received it in the Old Testament. We have the Word of God laid before us. You know, they didn't have all the things that we were presented to today. So this is what the, the author starts to unravel with the people. They often struggled with some of the modern methods of learning at that time. The Greco-Roman way of, uh, of study and, 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 and looking towards certain avenues for truth and for acceptance and for why the, the humanity is doing this and why they're part of this part of the world, they would explain things differently and they would learn from them differently as well. So the author is very, um, he's very good at breaking this apart. So we learn that through reading Hebrews, that revelation, one of the main statement sets caught throughout there is that would come because God decreed it. It wasn't because mankind came up with it. It wasn't a new found uh, uh, truth that someone just uncovered somewhere, but it was because God decreed it. He said it. He set it in motion. It was done. It was set before them. Um, and it's a really, really cool thing. But on your handout, 
Next part says, the author's intent was to reveal this new covenant with mankind in such a compelling way that there truly was no excuse to turn back. An example of something like this, in the way that the author is bringing forth the truth in, in Hebrews, is something similar to um, if we think about the printing press. The printing press was invented, it never really took away with the ability to write. It never took away from the ability to create and be creative, uh, to, to bring literature forward. Um, it didn't take away from the author. But what did it do? It presented a way for us to better be able to get that literature, get that knowledge, get those stories, get that understanding into more people's hands. And not even just more, but farther reaching than ever was possible before. It didn't necessarily overwrite our methods of creating stories or creating literature in general. It didn't overwrite it, but what it did is it made it possible to go even farther. Right? That's a very similar expression that the author chooses to make in Hebrews. So, and some of this will make sense as we connect the dots as we go a little farther. But who is the audience of Hebrews? The author's audience most likely is the Jewish Christian. So it was to proclaim the truths of the incarnation. It, it was something new. The incarnation wasn't, wasn't known. And the promise given to the forefathers actually being fulfilled. Things that would point back to the prophets, things that would point back to the Old Testament now were being fulfilled in, right before their eyes, even if they didn't quite see it. The, the author of this is trying to unveil that truth to them and do it in a way that's very... Very, very uh, a good way to do it. So the Jewish Christian would have carried on a lifestyle that supported the Mosaic Law and the teachings of the prophets, right? That's what they would have had at the time. It was the only way they knew. So the, the author does not dig up that foundation, right? He doesn't just dig it up and destroy that foundation. The thing that they knew and what they relied upon. He didn't wipe that canvas clean. But what he, what he does is he uses what's already been established, what was already put in place, what the Old Covenant already stated, what was already uh, things that they knew, things that they followed, the life that they lived. This is what he did. He put, it, put that all before them, right? And then he does something extraordinary, something that took a really great deal of thought. And this is where we're going to come back to that, those paintings. You see, like most, most traditional artwork uses paints of oil, Right? Um, acrylic, things like that of a modern age, but oil was primarily of the past times in the 16th century, 17th century. Um, but they would use a single layer across a white canvas or a styled canvas. And that's how they would paint. They would, they would start in a certain area, they would, they would add pieces, but, but they wouldn't really have any of the paint overlap or cover any aspect of what they've already created. And that's how they would create the portrait or the, the subject that they were trying to illustrate. This would actually create a smooth and uniform uh, substrate. The, the, the surface, the substrate, would actually allow them to glide their brushes more easily and be able to adapt to wherever lines they wanted to draw or wherever picture they were trying to, to, to make. Um, but in the 16th century, well before even some of the most respected artworks were created, there was a painting style that began to develop. Instead of using a single layer to create a scene, the idea of overlapping and or what would be considered layering, mind-boggling, right? How Layering, 
um, was experimented with. And in layering in its early methods would see the artist paint one aspect of their subject first, letting that one application of paint dry before adding another. The next layer would add another aspect of the subject and so on and so forth, allowing each application to settle and bond to the canvas before the next one would begin to be added. Some examples of that, if you want to put up slide three for me, are some of these paintings. They, you may not be able to read the text up there, um, but there's a painting by an, uh, uh, a famous painter called Aqua, uses that very format. You'll see there with the birds and kind of the, the, the lily pond beneath it. And then there's Camelback Mountain uh, in the middle, and that's used in the same method, more of a realistic type of painting. And then the last one is the Sky Mountain. And that one's a little different. It's a little bit more blended, but that was all created by putting multiple layers, sometimes hundreds of layers of paint on a single canvas. They're quite beautiful, though, however they, however they are able to do that. But some paintings, the layers are painted more translucent, and some layers beneath affect the colors that are on the top. In other paintings, opaque layers are used to obscure parts of the previous layer, but not cover them completely. So you're able to see subjects that, if you were to look at them like in our natural with our eyes, you see depth, right? Like an example like of a layered painting, if you were to try to paint like an animal with fur, a very, something that has a lot of depth, that has a lot of transition to it, it's thick, you know, there's, there's, there's material there, right? And, and what you would do in a layered painting is you'd start dark, maybe the first layer. And then you'd have multiple layers of different shadings that gradually got lighter as you got to the outside. And what that would do is that as you added those different layers of those different lines and all the things that you'd add for color, you would actually allow that painting to look like it had depth to it or a shadow or it would look more real, you know, from a perspective if you were to draw something or paint something that had fur. But every layer can also add a different material or technique. Individually one over the other by waiting until the layer is dry before applying the next. If you want to show the next slide, oh, sorry, yep, that one. That's another example of that very principle. And if you can almost tell that some of the painting looks like it's a lot thicker in some areas than the other. And that was very common in this type of painting as well. It would give you a reasonable sense of like depth to that, to that scene. Each layer could be the same, but may add a tint or a hue to the previous choice. In addition, a layer can consist merely of one small dab of paint or can involve a very thick overlay over the whole painting. You see, this beautiful method of layering is found throughout the Word of God as well. Isaiah proclaimed this to a troubled people of his time. They stumbled with their vision and they stumbled with their judgment. In Isaiah chapter 28, Starting at verse 10, it says this, For precept must be upon precept, and precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to his, this people, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. If you could put verse 13 up there too, But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. 
You see, in this very instance in time that Isaiah spoke of, God was declaring that first you must begin here. And then there is this next layer. And then there is this next layer, this next line, this next place, this next revelation, this next truth. And that's what he was getting to the people. They struggled with that. They, they were stuck in bondage because of the fact that they thought what they were doing was, was right and their judgment was true. And Isaiah said, wait, wait, wait. And they need to be taught this lesson, the same principle, even back in that time. It's truly a marvelous thing when we look at the parallels we see throughout Scripture. When we look at Isaiah from the past, we look at Hebrews in the beginning, and, and the old and the new both give each other accolades. Not, neither one of them shut each other down. They don't, the New Testament doesn't dismiss the old. The, the Old Testament speaks towards the new. They both cheer each other on as they move in parallel till the end. There's no dismissing one or the other. Uh, the New Testament is the prominent, more excellent way, but the old is what laid the layers before it so we can see the image that we have now that we see in Christ. Amen. See, therein lies the purpose of our author of the book of Hebrews, to not diminish the old way, but to reveal the more excellent covenant. Now, in your handouts, it says, So the letters contained in Hebrews speak of the message that was delivered to the faithful fathers of the past and how in a more complete that's a fill-in-a-blank, an excellent way is delivered to the church today. You see, in a more broad stroke of context over the epistles in general, you'll find there is a strong degree of focus put on the former times versus the current age. You'll see this as a common intent in the letters most often given to the churches. There's often a strong reference to the prophets, for in that time they were God's chosen they were their vessels, and they'd be the source of revelation and truth, and they would be the will of the Father. Though our Bible scholars could attest that tonight, uh, some of those methods used through the prophets were really quite unusual and controversial, even for the days we live in today. In, in one example, or a few different examples here, is Hosea married a prostitute. Isaiah preached naked and barefoot for three years. Jeremiah used buried linen girdle as an illustration. Ezekiel drew a picture of Jerusalem on a tile and depict, depicted it under siege. Amos once struck the top of a door to symbolize what was to be a coming earthquake. Very different and strange methods were used to speak to the people, for God to be able to give revelation, to give understanding, to give truth to the people. And those who would be the readers of the book of Hebrews would know the voice of God was used to speaking truth and wisdom through the prophets. So the author of Hebrews takes all of this in consideration as he writes to the Jewish Christians. He knows they would be looking at the lens that you'd be dividing for the prophets. So on your handouts, another good point is, so they write so, they write so that the Jewish Christians of the early church would look beyond just the prophets, of the Old Testament and look more earnestly to Jesus. This was all intended to point to a more excellent way. It was important to reveal the truths that were not readily known at the time. You see, the revelation of the early church 
were found through the general epistles, including Hebrews, with this very same method. It was always taking a look at what was already founded, what was already put in place, what layers already existed of truth. And that revelation then expanded because now Jesus was here. And on your handout, another piece, one of those said revelations was helping the early church see the more excellent portrait and image of God. Portrait and image of God. For many centuries, God's image was intentionally left incomplete. He was only seen as these things on your handout. You can see the one through five there. God was only seen as these things. He was seen as, one, the creator. He was seen as, two, the father of all. He was seen as, three, a consuming fire. Number four, he was unapproachable and untouchable. I apologize for the really long word. And lastly, five, he was viewed as holy. And he was viewed in this lens in such an unattainable way that mankind needed a high priest and the atonement of the tabernacle to even be able to sit near the presence of God. But when God revealed himself as a son, he revealed himself as vulnerable, able to feel sorrow and pain. He had compassion, and he wept for his creation, for his children. This was probably a reason why the religious elect could not see Jesus in God. What was on display, the, the, the emotion, the, the humanity that was visible caused them to look past that, that even possibility. Because that wasn't the God that they knew. That wasn't the God that they saw. And on your handout, though the author of Hebrews through his methods shows us this is actually the more complete image of God. The Son is the more complete image of God. So if we look at this, I won't go into this very long, but I sometimes like this is the way my brain works. Um, when we look at Scripture and Revelation, a lot of times we do have to take in consideration the translation and the Scripture and the words that are being used. Um, so in our more modern language, in a Scripture, let's just say um, Hebrews 3 and 6, if you could throw that one up there, Sue. Um, in verse 6 it says, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing, of the hope firm to the end. The, the word I want to focus on there is son. So, but for Christ as a son. You see, in our, our more modern languages that we have today, we often attribute a missing article. So in this instance, you'll see the letter A, a before son. Um, we also use things like his son or the son or in this instance, like I said, a son. And our language requires us to understand the quality and the type of son which is what those very first words mean, right? Because if you just say son, you don't have any understanding of what son that is, whose son that is, where that son is, any of those things. We have no idea in our current English language, right? 
So it uses, it, it requires us in our, in our modern translations, like the King James, anything that you look at today, to have that article before it. It has to determine that based off of the, the you know, the translation from the Greek or from the Hebrew. Um, I, I'm not boring you guys, am I? But this is, this is something that's kind of cool when we see it come out. Um, but the more ancient writing style never did this. Uh, they used the actual object, the thing that they're talking about. Like, an instance, the object of the sun. They were, used that word sun. And rather than just tell us what it is we're talking about, the language is more expressive. In fact, it refers to not just seeing the word as sun. It doesn't necessarily mean a specific sun or the sun or anything like that. It's more speaking of the whole concept of sunness, the whole concept of being a sun. Do you catch where we're going with this a little bit? So being a sun is more important to this author than talking about Jesus Christ as the Son. He's talking about what he's fulfilling through being a son. And that's why that language is very important to understand when you read through this book and also some of the other epistles too. So if we have this, if we have this revelation, if we have this understanding in the way that the author writes within this style of writing here, it helps us have a concept of when we look at this, uh, what he's really talking about when he's mentioning the son and what, what, how that applies to us. But an example, and I think I have this also on your handouts, is that it says, the son does not merely obey his father, but he possesses the very qualities of his father. That's your fill-in-the-blank qualities. Also, it says, a son defers to the greater wisdom of his father. And then the day comes that his father's wisdom has become his own. He cherishes his father and carries his legacy through life. That, that's, what the, that's what the author of Hebrews wants us to see when you see the word son. He doesn't want you just to, to think of an individual or a person or a role. He wants you to think of, this is what I mean when I say son, is this is what a son is in general. This is what I want a son to be to a father. In your handout, here's some examples. This is what God created Adam, the first fill-in-the-blank there, to be. Adam was a son, obedient, wise, differential, in God's earthly regent. But Adam chose to resist his calling. The next one, this is what God created Israel, fill-in-the-blank there, to be a son, obedient, wise, alert to the Father's voice in a world that was deaf to it. In God's earthly region again, but as we all know, Israel resisted. What better way for God to teach us how to be sons, how to be sons of God ourselves, than for God Himself to be born into this world and to reveal Himself as a son? He taught us how to be sons by being a son and living among us. He showed us how to live humbly before God and before others. He'd always deferred to his father's will, especially when faced with the sufferings he had to deal with in his flesh. As the author would say later in the letter, in Hebrews 2 and 10, he said, for it became God. And I'll skip a little forward. And bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. 
The whole point was to, to, to give us what we need to understand in the layering of what was already given us as an example of who God was from the old covenant. Now we're starting to see the picture become more clear of who God really is. We get a much clearer portrait of who God is. And, and let me just keep going a little bit deeper just for one moment here, if you can hold on. It says, the incarnation was the medium through which God would best exemplify how sons, that's, that's you and us together as one, sons, are to respond to the Heavenly Father. In doing so, Christ led many sons unto glory. So, if we look at the past, God spoke directly to His people in ways that, that challenged our minds. It, it, it broke our understanding. It shaked us. He, he did it through thunders and great quakes, uh, fire falling from heaven. Uh, he had unmatched authority and power. His spirit, in essence, was, was too great to conceal. He, he didn't have natural forms when he came into the presence of man. Um, he was always supernatural. Now, that's a word we don't always like to use, but he was. It wasn't anything natural in the way that he expressed himself. Just think of the cloud and the pillar of fire that led Israel. Uh, this, was, this was God's presence. It was his presence on, on Mount Sinai. It was, it was powerful. It was, it was smoke and clouds and fire and thunders. It was, it was nothing uh, that, that, that we would see as, as Jesus today. And, and this is where the, the parallel, this is where the parallel comes in play here within the Scripture. Though when he spoke as the Son, we saw our strong and mighty Father able to speak to us in a more natural way. On your handout, these are the things we saw. We saw him as, number one, vulnerable. Number two, able to suffer. Number three, express his pain. Number four, express his sorrow. And the fifth one is show his compassion and his love. I want to kind of lead us in to the end here with a story that kind of reflects on this whole principle of how the author talks about in parallel two things uh, different in, in many ways going in a sim similar direction, but yet uh, they speak to the same end in mind. And there's a story, there was a, one I read about a young son who went to visit his grandfather in the hospital. And he accompanied his father to the room in which his grandfather laid quietly and peacefully on the hospital bed. And fully expecting his father to remain stern and stable, the young son stood slightly off to the side. Though when his father sat next to his grandfather and pulled close to his side and, and took a damp cloth with one hand and gently began to pat his own father's forehead. The young son stepped a little closer. And when the boy's father took the other open hand that he had and held his father's hand, which lay helplessly on his chest, and as he saw tears begin to fall from his father's eyes, he stepped a little closer still. And when the young son's father laid his head upon his own father's chest, and in a shaking and broken voice, he heard him say, Daddy. 
all the young man could do was begin to weep as well. You see, a one singular view, the young son's father changed completely. His father's usual stoic nature and strong control over his emotions faded away. And now he began to see his own father, not just as his father, but also a son. He had only known him as a capable and confident man, who above all else was stable and strong. He never expected to see his father as a child. And from that day on, his perspective and view changed. It was no longer just the commanding voice he heard or the broad shoulders he saw, but there was also something vulnerable just beneath that strong exterior. In this eye-opening moment, the young son never found a reason again to cause strife with his father, to get in between him and himself for any reason because he finally saw his father and who he really was. You see, what we see in Jesus is what God was all along. It's not to say God was never vulnerable, able to to feel sorrow or weep for his creation or for his children. In fact, it was not the weaknesses of Jesus' flesh that caused these attributes to exist. No, it was because of the flesh that we were now able to see God as his most authentic self. Jesus is not the express image of only God's compassion or only a version of God in which he experienced mankind's suffering. No, on the contrary, and this is on your handout, Jesus is the most excellent view we have of God. We must not confuse humanity as existing outside of God's attributes and his expressed image. We cannot say God took on the nature of humanity when he robed himself in flesh, but more that humanity received the nature of God already in creation. After all, we know we are made in his image. Jesus was not made in the image of mankind. In fact, our emotions, our attributes, every virtue we have are all inherited from our Father. And my own thoughts led me to this when I was reading through much of the Scripture and studying for this is, is it possible that God the Father saw himself already in the image of Christ from the very beginning? Before the seas were formed, the firmaments were made, the earth was created. He already saw the Word made flesh. And oftentimes we think when he created us, he molded us, he pulled us out of the dirt and created something new. And it was beautiful that it was something unique. But all along the way, God already saw what that image was. And he saw it on a cross. And he saw it in a tomb. And he saw it raised up again. And that's who we are, is that image we were, we were visible long before anything else that we see in this world was ever created. Why? Because God saw us through him. Each and every one of us. 
And after all, the terms that we've said tonight, sons, we talked about a lot of technical things within Scripture. We must pull this out of the Scripture, knowing this revelation that this is what the Hebrew author was trying to tell those Jewish Christians at the time. They struggled with this. They, didn't, they, didn't, they couldn't understand this. So he's telling them that, no, you are a son of the Father. You are a son of the Father. And the lineage, the attributes, and the name is yours. We are the children of God. That means not only have we been made in that image of our Father, we have the ability through Jesus to take on all that He's given us. That name that's above every name. Guess what? We have that name. We're part of that family. As it clearly states in Galatians 2 and 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This concept is found throughout the Bible, like I've said. Even Paul talks about in his letters, he says, through faith we obtain sonship. That's another cool word that we could explore, how he uses that word sonship. Um, we're considered heirs to the kingdom. This is an important piece that we never should lose track of. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it even says, For grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What a beautiful and magnificent portrait God has given us. And we must not lose track of what we see in, this, in the Word. It, it's, it's put there in a way that it's very beautiful. It's very expressive. Um, and the author does a wonderful job in Hebrews, whoever that may be, and I can only hope to wait to see and meet that person in heaven, but the revelation is true that there is no ec more excellent way than what we have. Aren't you thankful for what Jesus has given us? the truth, all His promises. And just like that term, term son that brings a more complete understanding to who God is and who we are, the term faith also is used to bring understanding not just to who we are, but how we're to respond to our sonship. So tonight, we all learned we are one big family. And what it means to be a son to look at that time and how that runs in parallel exactly to what God was. He was always from the beginning, except revelation comes in His time. And I'm thankful that we have that today. But next week, we are going to explore, now that we have all been called sons and daughters of the Lord, how is it that we are to respond to that? All right? Excited for the next adventure? I'll bring coloring sheets next time. I just don't know where the crayons are. We'll have to find those. Um, but praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you for being patient. Um, this is a wonderful opportunity to look into the book. Tonight we basically went through chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews. So go back, look at that, explore it, read through it. You'll see a lot of the, the things that I just talked about tonight. 
Um, and then next, next week, we're actually going to be, if you want to get a head start, we're going to be going through chapters 11 and 12. So we're going to talk about faith a little bit and that. So why don't we just all stand? And we're going to say a word of prayer before we go. Jesus, we are just so thankful for your presence, God, for your word, for your revelation, everything that you've blessed us with, God, that we can read daily. It's just right there. We have access to it no matter when we need it, Lord God, and that there's so much there that we can unpack and use to our life, and God, that it can help us explain things to people, to help them understand the the things, the truths that you've given us and the pathway that we should go. So bless us all tonight, God. We thank you. We thank you as our Savior. We thank you as our Father. We thank you of all the things you've already done in our lives and where you're taking us. Bless us all here tonight as we go our own ways. God, we love you and we pray this in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all. And you guys are dismissed.